Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast, where the genre of the movie that we decide to discuss is decided by the role of a die. And we're going to be doing a movie later in this episode, but first we're going to be talking about the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, which is coming up September 15th for the 17th of 2022 with Martin Grams, who runs the convention. Um, just before we go into that, I just want to remind everybody that our next episode is the continuation of the Hammerama series that Alistair Hughes and I do. And I uh, hope everybody listens to that. That'll be coming out in a few days. And otherwise, I hope everybody has a good day. And you're going to hear the Hammerama promo. And right after the promo, we're going to go straight into Martin and I talking about the Mid Atlantic Nostalgia Convention and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from. Walt Disney. Thanks. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hemorama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely. And of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of Hammer Hard from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film Vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique and unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And this is a special episode because it's a few weeks from now, it's one of my favorite times of the year. It's the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, September 15th through the 17th from 2022 at the Hunt Valley Delta Marriott in Hunt Valley, Maryland. It's like 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes from my house. It's one of my favorite conventions. One, because it's close to, because it has a lot of different people I love to meet and see and talk to. And it's run by a friend of mine, Martin Grams. How are you doing today, Martin? Doing good. Thank you for having me on. And yeah, that's my favorite show too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope the show you run would be your favorite because if it's not, then you're obviously not running it the right way for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't, yeah, that's the one thing I don't do not do not run it for me. I actually do run it for the attendance because the decisions we make throughout the year of what it is, what would the attendance, what would the attendees like to see, who would they like to see, what would be fun for them. But uh, as for putting it on, I enjoy it. And granted, it's work, but I enjoy it. It's not only work, but it's work for a cause. And I think a lot of people don't realize that not many conventions donate all their money to charity. Most of them are for profit. Yours, all the, all the proceeds go to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. Correct. Yeah, it's uh, the way the system, it's kind of a different business model. It's a 501 nonprofit limited liability company. And then what it is is that we have a certain working budget that we work from that. And then uh, when that comes back, of course, from the income, like at the gate and the cost of the vendor tables that we rent out and so on, 
um, once the expenses are paid, we usually save about 15% on top for future years to add to that kitty for next year. And then all the rest always gets donated to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital to benefit children with treatable cancer. So, and, and then on top of that, of course, they have a charity auction and all the auction proceeds go to the children. So it's a nice way to sit back and say we have accomplished something and made the world a better place than it was when we woke up. Exactly. And I think that's, that's one of the main reasons I love it. And the second main reason I love it, like I said earlier, it's, it's, it's such a family atmosphere. You get there, it's a laid back convention. You get a chance to talk to a lot of the celebrities that are there. Cause not, not, not all of them have constantly long lines. A lot of them have smaller crowds there, especially if you time it right. And you can have some nice conversations with them. And um, because most of the people that show up, if not all of them are not only interested to be there to set them for you to meet them and sign and ask to answer questions, but they also ask stuff about you because they're, they're curious about why people enjoyed the stuff that they did. And it's, it's kind of a nice thing where it's, it's um, everybody's getting something back. Right. And, and it's funny, we call it the nostalgia convention. Um, it does come off, I guess, two different ways. The one is that it's a, looking back at the bygone era, but in reality, it really focuses on what conventions used to be back then. So it's more nostalgic feel laid back people are not numbers or they're actually names um the attend the celebs will even take time to answer questions even if people are not there to buy an autograph or have their photo taken with the celeb whereas some shows like you know at comic con you know you're not even gonna be able to get in line to meet the star if you haven't paid in advance and it's like we don't want that you should have a chance to be able to go up there and ask that question or two and not have to pay for it so it's a it's, it's a nice weekend, and it's done very well. And as long as people still keep coming and the attendance grows every year, we'll keep doing it. Oh, exactly. And I know there was a, a convention that had a, a celebrity at there. It was one of those, like you said, the models are trying to get as many people through and are charging the money. And the one celebrity was talking to people, and the security people said, no, you can't do that. We just need you to sign and keep the line moving, And it, it, which – is it's terrible, but at your convention, it's the total opposite of that, which is what I love is because you get a chance to talk to the people. You don't have to wait in line to, to get an autograph. You don't have to wait in line to get a picture. If you don't want to, you can ask your question. Um, if you feel intimidated about asking a question, a lot of these celebrities are going to be in Q and A's and somebody else might ask your question. So it's, it's really great. And it cost is inexpensive. I mean, to the end of this month, to the end of August 31st, if you buy online, a ticket is $15 a day. And if you wait and if you decide to as an impulse buy or whatever it fits in your schedule and you're going to come up the day of the event, I think after August 31st, it goes to $20 per day, correct? Correct. And by comparison, there's a convention a month later at the same hotel. And I think it's $30. And I keep thinking Saturday might be 35 but I know they're charging 10 bucks more at the gate. And they don't give you a full-color program guide like a magazine. Um, one of the advantages of being nonprofit, that's that. And, and then the other nice part about being nonprofit and benefiting children with treatable cancers, we've been able to pull off getting some celebrities, usually about one or two a year, that don't do shows. Or in some cases, it was a one-time gig, but they did it for the kids. And so that's helped. And plus the advertising. Some places won't promote conventions, but they go, oh, it's for St. Jude's. Yeah, we'll, we'll promote it. So we've gotten a lot of leverage out of it. I think like one year we got Robert Conrad and that seemed to have appealed to him to, oh, if you're doing it for children with treatable cancer, why not? He was charging 20 bucks where most conventions, they would have had him charging 40, 60 or 50. And so like this year, we've got a few stars and it just appealed to them and they said, oh, come do it for the charity. Why not? 
and that was very nice of them. So we're getting some celebrities. I think we have three of them, maybe four, that have never done them in, ever. We have two that haven't done them in 10, 15 years. It's like we've got an impressive lineup, but that's it's working to get these celebrities in. Oh, exactly. And the other thing I want to mention about the people, if you have a, if you have a family, um, if they're under 16, it's free. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We it, we were very – it's funny. We, our rule of thumb generally is if they don't have a driver's license, they're 16 because we can't, we can't card them, but we also don't uh, – I remember there was a woman. She brought her son along, and we kind of looked at it and it said, you know, there's no way he could be 16, even 16, let alone under 16. And I said uh, – I said, uh, did you get your driver's license recently? I bet you're proud of driving. She goes, oh, yeah, I've been driving for three years. And you can see her turn and look at her son. And I went, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was like, he ain't 16 <laughs> or under. <laughs> Every so often, I remember working at a summer camp or volunteering, volunteering at a summer camp, and there was an 11-year-old who was taller than me. I'm six foot three almost. And he was six five, and he was not like a lanky six five. He was like built, and he looked like he was one of the junior volunteers, like a seventeen or eighteen year old that's coming to help out. But no, he was one of the eleven year old campers. So every so often, you do get an outlier. Yeah. Oh yes, there is. <laughs> but you you have a great lineup. I mean, for people that are interested, TV, movies, game shows. I mean, you have it all, and. I mean, there's a lot of people who I'm excited to meet and talk with while I'm there. Um, Melissa Gilbert, you know, Little House on the Prairie for crying out loud! It's 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 amazing you got her coming. Yeah, actually, um, her agent kept uh, we we talked back and forth, and we never ended up somehow making it happen. And then after last year, when the air the hotel had an air conditioning snafu, and I thought now we need to kind of grow and do a little something that we don't normally do or at least get some people you know in other words we don't want to have a second year like that where it's another different reason so the first thing i did is i called him up and said hey dude let's make it happen let's get melissa gilbert we've been talking about it but we need to have a nice lineup next year so uh he said okay no problem and she called i'll do it oh it's awesome i'm I'm, like i'm looking forward to it and you said you had some people coming for the first time um coming up you want to name some of those names that are coming to the first time at convention or haven't been to a convention in years Oh, yeah. Um, Bob Eubanks has never done a show before. He's on his way to um, Atlantic City. He's going to do something on stage. I think they do the after newlywed game now where on stage they get in some people who've been married for 40 years and they ask questions to see if they actually know how much they know about each other. Um, so he, we were like, why don't you stop on over here? You're on the way. And he's like, eh, why not? I'll give it a try. I've always I've heard about doing these and meeting the fans. Um, and nice guy on the phone. Uh, I know Nancy Kovacs coming over from, I think, Italy, so she hasn't done one before. Susan George has never done a show before. I was kind of surprised on that, but she's coming from England. I think she she started a business. I don't know if it's a fashion model business or a distribution business. She's got like two secretaries, but uh, she's willing to come over and do that, and she's never done one before. I know a Bond girl, Lynn Holly Johnson, can't. Uh, she's never done one in like more than a decade. Uh, for some reason, she just decided she wasn't going to do any more conventions. And then she said, oh, okay, I'll do that. Like, oh, good. So, um, and, and I think there's some that do one a year. They don't do five or six or hit the circuits. So off the top of my head, those are ones I know that just really haven't. I think we have an actress from Facts of Life coming 
um, Mindy Cohn, she's only done one ever. So this will be her second ever. So that's a rarity too. Oh, and Jennifer Savage, this will be her first time, I think, doing a convention. Correct. That'll be her first. Um, she's never done one. She's, she's, I don't know if she's ever wanted to. Somebody commenced her to do a show, and then she asked her husband, Bob, and Robert Fuller said, well, why don't you come with me? Then you can get a feel for it, but you'll be with me. I'll be right there. I can hold your hand if you ever have a problem. So she's like, okay. So she feels comfortable. She's, yeah, I forgot she's doing it. That'll be her first. There's somebody else, I can't remember, but they're doing their first show ever. And then there's a couple others that haven't done them in so long. And we've got we've got some people who are connecting and picking up phones and just making things happen, which is good. Oh, which is wonderful. And and if you're a Batman TV show fan, this is the convention to come to. If you want to get some, if you want to have a lot of people there, you know, because you have three actresses that have connections to Batman. Yeah, and they were all uh, henchwomen for the, some of the major classic villains um, for Catwoman and Joker and Riddler. And apparently, it's, I, I really do believe just those three combined is going to be a nice draw. Oh, exactly. You know, so, I mean, it's just, it just makes it wonderful because you have what? Um, I'm trying to think now. You have Sharon Winters, um, Linda Gay Scott that are coming, you know, that have the Batman connection. I'm trying to remember the third one. I'm blanking a little bit. Is it Nancy Kovac? Correct. Nancy Kovac was, um, she did an episode of the, uh, Linda Gay Scott was the moth. That was with a Riddler. Sharon, Wind, Sharon Winters was with a uh, Catwoman. Um, I believe, uh, she played, um, Nancy Kovac was Queenie with a uh, Joker. And Nancy Kovac, I mean, Star Trek, the original series, um, she was in Jason and the Argonauts. I mean, she's been in t- classic TVs and movies episodes. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. I, I'm excited to actually meet her. <laughs> yeah, she did a Diary of Madman with Vincent Price. She was on Man from Uncle. She did um, uh, she did a Matt Helm movie, The Silencers. She was on uh, oh, what's that one? Um, Tarzan in the Valley of Gold with uh, Mike Henry. Uh, she's just, and then she was Elvis is uh, enjoying in uh, uh, Frankie and Johnny. So she's like worked with everybody. Oh, I know, and I know, and, and the matter, it, and people, the questions you can ask, and the history, the knowledge of the film history that's right there. You know, it's amazing what you what you might be able to get because um, you and I were talking prior to this. She has no memoirs, no book. I mean, you know, the only way you're going to get these stories is is to go to the show and to hear her because that's it. Yeah, and the best part about the Q&As on stage is we usually do film them, so we've got them preserved. But uh, with her, I really wanted to give her a 90 minutes and just go right down the IMDb. But then we thought, no, nah, we'll get some private interviews uh, during the weekend, too. You want to see if you can get as much out of her over the weekend. So, uh, you know, she never does decide to do her memoirs, like she says. We'll, we'll sit down and get a book that's at least in her own words. You know, her recollection and memory about this show and that show and that movie and this actor. So we'll, we'll get it preserved. Cause, and that's kind of like doubling an effort for what the convention's for, too. And you speak about another actress that has a lot of Hollywood history that's going to be there. Constant Towers. How often does she do, do shows, Constant Towers? Um, she's done two in Hollywood. She's never done one on the East Coast that I know of. So, uh, And I don't think... She did one in Hollywood, I think, two years ago, maybe three, but she hadn't done one in 10 years prior to that. So this is also a big coup to 
have her talk about uh, John Wayne and everyone else she's worked with. And she's got a long career. Oh, exactly. And, and so you're right there. You have two people with a huge history in Hollywood that, you know, trust me, you got to be there. One I'm looking forward to because, you know, when I was born and stuff like that, Sam J. Jones, Flash Gordon himself. Yep. I mean, come um, on. <laughs> and actually, I was surprised. I knew him as Flash Gordon. But then I took a look online, and I'm looking at all the other films he's done and TV shows, The Highwayman, and so on. I'm like, wow, he actually did more than just Flash Gordon, but that became a cult classic. And, of course, he did those two, two, the two movies, Ted, with Seth MacFarlane recently, So, where he actually plays Sam Jones. And then once the montage scene, he actually plays uh, Flash Gordon. So uh, I guess he just likes to live life a little bit, take a, don't live it too seriously, and enjoy Oh, yeah. He was also the the TV movie version of the Spirit. So there was the movie The Spirit on the, that came out in the film, the theaters, but there was also the TV one, The Spirit from 1987. And so he was, you know, you're talking about somebody who's played a lot of iconic roles, and has done a lot more than just Flash Gordon. And and from what I've seen of him in um, other places and stuff like that, he he seems to be a person who really enjoys being around the fans and loves to have a good time. He does, and in fact. Um... I remember watching The Spirit about a year ago for the first time, and I never realized that was him because it was a made-for-TV movie, and it wasn't like there was a recognizable face at the time. So I guess I was introduced to him from watching that. And so now looking back, I'm like, oh, no, I've seen him a few other films. that didn't, did not put one and one together. But that's what half comes with being a character actor. You get to do more diverse roles, and then you end up, hey, wait, that's the face I've seen for the last 20 years in other movies. Now, your show's from September 15th to the 17th, and September 17th, 50 years ago, was when a show aired that most people still know today, even if they grew up just recently, MASH. And you have two people coming from MASH. Yeah, Jamie Farr and uh, Loretta Swit. And Jamie Farr, um, he's never done the show before. Loretta Swit is coming. She insisted on coming. So we were like, okay, sure. So it's it, on that Saturday. I'm wondering how many people are going to get their photographs uh, dated, just because that's the anniversary date, and give it a little bit more value, I guess. And so um, I expect a lot of people coming to see it. Some people were impressed to see her, and I was like, she was there three or four years ago, but I guess not everybody got to see her then. I remember seeing her and, and talking with her. So yes, she was there. He, he's not kidding. <laughs> and yeah, she's a she's a sweetheart. And speaking of TV, you mentioned Mindy Cohn who's going to be there at one of her rare appearances, the facts of life. But you also have another person. A lot of people know from TV, you know, from the dynamite JJ Walker, Jimmy Walker, J, you know, cause coming. <laughs> yeah. Nice guy. Apparently he just wants to get out of the house. And he said, uh, yeah, I'll come over if you could. Um, he's actually was filling in for somebody who canceled, who couldn't do conventions anymore. She's up to a certain age. So, he filled in for somebody else, and I was like, no, we'll take it. So it was perfect timing. He called about 20 minutes after we lost somebody. So I was like, well, if the fates were for you. You're all in. Timing is everything, as you well know. And for those that are wondering, you have some some people that I've interviewed before at your show. Um, Beverly Washburn, who is old yeller, Spider Baby, Superman and the Mole Man, um, 
Shane. I mean, she's been in Everett Star Star Trek. I mean, and she's uh, listeners. If you haven't had a chance to meet Beverly Washburn, listen to the interview. She is just a joy to be around and to talk to. Is she? She is so kind. She is, and she's uh, regrettably she's one of the very small handfuls that I could not get on stage for a Q and A. We only have so much space and time slots. So it's like, ah, oh, bummer. And I thought, well, she's done a lot of conventions. She's done interviews. The questions are probably going to be the same ones that she's been asked before. And I mean, a lot of shows. I mean, she probably did like four or five shows a year for the last decade. And I was like, well, Nancy Kovac has not. So, you know, we had to put a priority. So I feel sorry for Beverly, but I just talked to her the other day. She completely understood and goes, oh, no. She goes, I, I agree. I don't know what questions they could ask, but they can't ask at the table even during the weekend. That's perfect. You're, you're, on the, you're on key. So uh, she won't be up on stage answering, but she's there to answer with the fans direct. And, and, and don't be intimidated by people. Beverly is one of the nicest, kindest people. And if every, every bit of money she makes at her table, she donates to local animal charities, animal shelters at the area. So it's not only you're helping St. Jude's, but if you, if you get anything from her, you're helping you're basically an animal shelter in the Baltimore County area. I believe Loretta Swit is also uh, donates money to an animal shelter of sorts. Uh, she even has a book about animals that she usually brings to the show and signs copies. But she donates money to the same cause too. I know a bunch of celebs they do it for charity because they don't need the money. They just like to get out and you know to contribute. They don't want to just sit there and say I'm for this charity, but not at least make some contribution. But it's, it's like a win-win for everybody. Yeah, I think um, Loretta, if I remember right, I know one of the charities she's big with is the one that gets the um, the canines in the military matched up with the soldiers they were with. You know, like like when when they get when so when when their tour is over, they get put back together in civilian life. Ah, uh, yeah, that's it. Yep. I think that's what it is. Um, but it's been a few years for both of us, so please, listeners, if we're a little off, or she might have changed. <laughs> Yeah, actually, actually, I, I have her book. I remember I'm a, I'm a sucker for the books, but not so much the autography photos. And I don't get many autographs, but I always figure if they took time to write a book or do a book, then at the very least I should, you know, it's like an artist who put a lot of time and effort into it. I usually say if you buy an artwork, it's not the, or like say women who buy jewelry, it's not that work, that time it took to make it. It's the hundreds, tens of thousands of hours that it took to craft it. So, uh, if they, have, if they write a book, I'm always guilty of grabbing the book, no matter what the book is. Oh, correct. And another person who I'm excited to see because of Django Unchained and a lot of other movies that, that she was in is Laura Cayouette. Yeah, she did, um, what was it? Um, I know she did Kill Bill. She was in with Michael Madsen in the bar scene. Um, that's my favorite of all the Tarantino films. I'm not saying it's the best, but it's my favorite. It's a guilty pleasure. Um, but she's worked with Tarantino. She's worked with a lot of major Hollywood stars. And uh, she's not afraid to say she was, you know, just a brief scene. But the funny part is she's not like, you know, girl number four in the bar in the background. She's actually like the person who comes out and actually exchanges conversation. And it's not just one or two lines either. So she's kind of like the, I would call the in-betweener, where she's not a supporting actress. But it's a craft to be able to get up to that level. And I know a lot of people who've never gotten to that level and appear in hundreds of movies and TV shows. So she's going to be an interesting talk at the, at the table. And I know she wrote a book, and it's, very, it's not a bad book. It's very interesting what the view of the Hollywood is. Oh, exactly. And 
and, and she's worked with a lot of people as a character actress where she's worked with Richard Dreyfuss, Shirley MacLaine, you know, just to name a couple. So you're talking about, she has, and, and she seems to be pretty good friends of Richard Dreyfuss. So there's probably a lot of stories there you can ask her, you know, besides working several times with Quentin Tarantino. So you have somebody here with current, roughly current movies that go back and also movies that go back 20, 30 years ago. And she was even in TV show episodes of Malcolm McDowell and Lauren Holly. So it's a lot of, you know, depending on what your nostalgia is, because you and I both know, depending on how old you are, some people look at classic time periods and it, it, it's, a, it's a range depending on who you're talking to and how old they are to what they consider classic TV or classic movies. She's one that would right. be more of the recent. Yeah, she's actually, I think she's defined as a supporting player. Now that I'm getting my brain cleared a little bit, an extra is usually somebody who's in the background. They don't have much dialogue or anything. She's a supporting actor, so it's not so much a character actress, which means when she's on the screen, like she shares time with, say, Michael Madsen in that one scene with uh, in uh, Kill Bill, um, she's not supposed to carry the scene. She's supposed to support him. He's supposed to carry it, even if he's playing his role down. In other words, it's like it's like sort of like being the straight man in a comedy and in a, a comedy comedy duo. One's comedic, one's a straight man. She's the straight woman, and so she actually gets up on the screen and says, okay, let me, you know, to say Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio and says, you know, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to step up, be a couple steps behind you so that you look like you're closer by perception to the camera? How do you want me to do this so you can do it? She's basically is supporting them. And so that's, that, you don't usually see many supporting performers. And I find from the people that I've interviewed in the past, when you talk to people that are supporting performers, uh, let's use an example like Jeremy Ambler, who's a regular at, at your show and who's going to be at this year's show. Um, and just like her, you know, they're in a lot of different work, but they're there supporting people and, and, and they help out and they have interesting stories because they're able to come with a different perspective, you know, cause they're not the stars. They're more like the, the blue collar actor, the, the, the working actor that, that, that does things from gig to gig. And, um, and it makes a, makes a living out of it, but, you know, they're not going to be household names and that kind of stuff. Right. And, and the funny part is they always have the stories behind the scenes stories too they share. And it occurred to me, a lot of them who become stars or co-stars for movies and TV shows, let's say, for example, Jamie Farr for MASH. Prior to that, you know, he was an actual character actor or a supporting actor for a number of movies and TV shows. So they all work their way up. So in most cases, that shows they end up being um, people who actually went one step above, but they never talk about those lesser ones unless it's a cult status, like say, like Twilight Zone. But Jamie Farr didn't actually play any major role in the Twilight Zone episode. He was just the guy in the background. So you know, he might be asked about it, but he didn't really have a major role, like you know, say Mickey Rooney or uh, Richard Conte. So. I can see that, but in this case, Laura is going to be a great person to chat with just because you can find out what it's like to work your way up. Oh, exactly. And um, speaking of cult movies, The Sword and the Sorcerer is one is one of those ones I've never seen in the theaters growing up, and it's just it's a cult movie still now. And you have Kathleen Beller, you know, from coming from there, who is you know in the, prominently in the movie. Yeah, she's a. She lives somewhere, I think she's like four or five states away, and she's going to drive over to the show. Um, my parents, my mother, loves those kind of movies. I call them sword and sorcerer films. And so even my mother knew who she was. 
and she did like the second Godfather movie and so on. Um, the funny thing is I was talking to her briefly and she says, you know, this one film, if you could ever find it, I'd love for you to screen it. She goes, I did a PBS special and it was just for actors who wanted to do, you know, they do three or four episodes a year, minor thing. And she says, I'd love to be able to see it too. If you could find it and not just screen it, my kids and grandkids would love to see it. And it's called Rappuccini's Daughter based on Nathaniel Hawthorne's story. And my statement to her was, oh, we can find it. And we did. And we're going to screen it at the show, but going to give her a DVD she can go home with, a couple DVDs, so she's got a backup or two. And I have a feeling she's going to absolutely love that. Oh, that is wonderful, you know, that you're able to put that together. You know, I know, I know um, it's amazing when some performers do certain things and then they can't find the work. It's, it's when you can actually get that to them and you, or it's a picture or whatever. It's, it's just something that when you're able to help them you know, find something that they've always wanted to, wanted to see. Because some of them never see their work, and then they always wanted to look at it later on. And, and depending on when they were in television and other stuff, it could, it could be very difficult to find. Yeah, I think sometimes they don't look back because they're so busy working. I remember uh, Lauren Stevens we had at the show probably about 15 years ago, and he was a character actor. And Warren told me, he said, I never went back and looked at any of them. He goes, first of all, I have to keep track of when they're going to air on TV and no, I'm actually at a studio filming the next episode of whatever TV show I was doing, whether it be Man from Uncle or Twilight Zone or Coronado 9. So he was actually wanting to go back and look at him now all these years. And he said, it's like looking at a photo of you in high school, except it moves. You really don't like looking at it. But he was a method actor. So he said, once in a while, every fourth or fifth appearance, he'd look at it and go, my God, I love that. I did great on that. Look at that scene. And, but he wanted them just for his kids and grandkids. So we found a whole bunch of films right that year. I think it was like Man from Uncle, where he plays the villain who's got headaches, which television code was he was insane, and other scenes. But now that we look back at it, yeah, he was right. He was a method actor. It shows. It's just amazing. I mean, the lineup you have is just huge. And as you already said, Robert Fuller is going to be there again. I mean, it's just – it's. and I remember when he was there the last time, it was he – had, he had long lines – and was very accommodating with everybody taking time to make it special for them, you know, and, I, and, and which is what most of the people there are for, because they know it's to benefit charity and they know that they, and they're there for the, um, to pay back the fans that gave them such a wonderful career or opportunities to do the different things they were able to do. Oh yeah. And, and it's also nice because sometimes, especially when they're new and some of them this year, I've never done one before. They're going to tell me the same thing I've heard from people who've never done them before my goodness, the fans remember stuff I forgot I even did myself. <laughs> and they'll mention a stage play in Pittsburgh, or I remember one actor, I forget his name, he was there at the table and someone brought up a crossword puzzle from the New York Times and said, and one of them signed it, and he goes, I never did. And then he stopped and went, no, I did. I did a crossword puzzle for the New York Times. And they had it, and the guy was just blown away. Um, what was it? We had Roy Finnis make his first appearance at a convention. Someone gave him, told him, you were in 1968 delivering a lecture at a UFO conference, and I was there. And he looked at him and said, I never appeared at a UFO conference. And the guy goes, no, I did. In fact, you did. In fact, I recorded it at the time with my little pocket recorder or whatever device. He goes, and I did a transcript. This is for you to give. And Finnis told me the next day, he goes, you know, I was being polite to the guy, but I went home. Could, I went up to the hotel room, couldn't sleep, started reading it. And I get about a paragraph in and went, holy crap, I did do this. <laughs> it's amazing how the, the knowledge of um, the fandom how they'll remember a lot of these details and and i don't blame actors 
for not remembering these things because it was, it was, you know, you did the job, you moved on to the next job. You did that job, you moved on to the next job. And you're not going to remember all these little details of things that happened throughout your career, especially, you know, for some of these people that have had careers that have gone on for you know, 50 years. Oh, yeah. And, and speaking of people that have had careers that have gone on for a while, not only do you have people there for people to um, get autographs or pictures with, but you also have seminars and movies going on. So there's a movie room that's dedicated to movies all day long. As you brought up like different TV shows, different movies that people can go in, but you also have the seminars where the, the Q and A's are, or you have people talking in detail about a particular topic. Yeah. To me, I've always said too many events actually use the word con or convention when it really is not a convention. By definition, it's a group of fanboys or people who share a common interest. You convene together, hence a convention. But a lot of them, they're just nothing but autograph venues. So they might have started out the same way we did and progressively realized, okay, there's not as many people watching movies or watching panels, and we do a better result with the celebs. And then it becomes all about the celebrities, not the fun events during the weekend. So I've always said it to be a convention. We need to slideshow seminars and movies. And uh, I know this year we're doing a lot more film screening that are hard to find that the celebrities have done. But because the next year we'll go back to a bunch of the rare, obscure films that people have never seen. Um, but I know uh, slideshow seminars is my favorite because I learn things that people have done before. Um, I mean, there's, I'm a big fan of Dick Tracy, and someone did a slideshow presentation of Dick Tracy who knew Chester Gould. So I was learning some things I didn't know. And then you'll get people who, like, there's a guy who's going to do a presentation this year on uh, James Stewart's military career when he was in World War II. And uh, they, he actually had material by, uh, from the uh, war records. He went to the U.S. government to dig into this. So he's going to show stuff that I'm going to myself going to say, well, I like James Stewart. I want to learn about his World War II career. And it'll probably be the most fascinating presentation. It will be. I know the guy, but it's going to be great. And so I love the slideshow presentation more than, believe it or not, anything else in the convention. I'm with you there, too, because it's, it's one of the great things to go to learn about some of these different things and because you can look at it ahead of time and you, you already got the program up online at, you know, Atlantic nostalgia convention.com. So people can look to see where click seminars. You can see what's there to tell you when the Q and A's are, but also tells you the one, but there's one in particular, which you have coming up the life and career of Nehemiah Persoff, because I interviewed Nehemiah Persoff earlier this year. He was 102 at the time. And he passed away a few months after that. And I also interviewed the person doing the presentation, who's also a regular at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, Jim Rosen, who's a wonderful individual. Both are wonderful men. And yeah, it's a great, it's yeah, a great Jim, story. Jim is actually, believe it or not, Jim is actually his cousin. Yes. Jim is a, is a, was his cousin, so he helped Nehemiah Persoff actually write his memoirs and then get it published. Um, now the sad part is I don't know how long those books are going to be available. So I got to find out from Jim if it's going to go out of print because it was kind of like that print on demand. So it may become a very hard, hard to find collectible later on. So I'm going to check with Jim at the convention. You have a copy of the book. It's the many faces of Nehemiah and it's excellent book. It's, it's a quick read and it's, it's written as if he was telling you the stories. And if you pair it with, the interview that I did with him, you know, it's kind of, you get an idea what his voice sounds like. So then when you, when you get used to his voice, then you start to read the book. It's almost like you hear his voice telling you the stories going through. And you're talking about somebody who grew up in, um, 
became Israel, pro, pro before Israel, and his parents moved to the New York during the Depression. So he grew up in a different country to like the first nine or ten years. Then the rest of his life, he was growing up in Depression era New York, and then how he went on to eventually be going to movies and TV and became one of the well-known character actors that was ever out there. And he's been in tons of stuff like the Comocheros, Some Like It Hot, you know, and, and, and on the waterfront, tons and tons of work. And he was in the original group that was in the actor's studio. Yeah, I remember when I was researching a, a book I wrote about Twilight Zone and I was tracking down all the actors. I went on Google and I got by strange coincidence found he had a website because he was a painter. So I was like, well, I'm going to send an email and they'll forward it to him. And this is like 11 o'clock at night and I'm on the East Coast. And he lives in New York City. So I send an email. This is what I'm doing, yada, yada, yada. And I don't think it was even 10, 15 minutes, maybe 20. And I'm exaggerating. It might have been a half hour. Anyway, I get a response back before the evening was even over. like 11, 11.30 at night. And I get a text, an email back. Hi, Mr. Graham. This is Nehemiah Persoff. I run my own website. Uh, I remember doing that episode of Twilight Zone. And he gives me a nice two paragraphs of just what he remembered as filming the episode, yada, yada. And it was like, I was like, wow, that was about probably the quickest response and the quickest, uh, very humble, very nice guy. And I was like, you don't usually get that kind of response from Celeb that quick just by dropping an email. Oh, exactly. And uh, it, it was it was a wonderful person to talk to. It was a great, it was, it was one of the best, the 80, 90 minutes of my life was talking to him. Yeah. We tried to get him to the show a few times. Jim tried to talk to him, but he was adamant. He wasn't going to leave his apartment or whatever in this in, Cal, in uh, New York city. So we tried a couple of times and then we're like, all right, after the second time, it's not going to happen. But I would have loved to have had him at the show because people would have loved to have asked questions about all the various things, TV shows, movies, and the untouchables, the great theater that he would have done. Oh, he he would have had the, he would have had everybody captivated and eating out of his hands. I'm sure because when I was when I was talking to him at 100, when he wrote the book, co-wrote the book with Jim when he was 101. So it's it's not like you know, it, the man was sharp as a tack at 102. I mean, he, you, you, I hope if I live as long as he did, or even as long as even somewhere close, that I'm able to have that the the, the mental capacity that he was able to do with the recall he was able to have about different stories and facts. Yeah, very nice guy. Darn shame he passed away. But uh, like I said, I, uh, the book is good. I do recommend it as well. I agree with you. And so uh, it's Jim Rosen, I think, actually published before him. So that's why that's I'm going to check with Jim to find out. Because uh, for all I know, me and my personal family may say, yeah, we're, we're going to take the book somewhere else. Or, no, we're, we're good. We don't need to handle the incoming money from the executor as an executor of the state. There's always various reasons. So we want to find out because if it turns out that they're not going to publish too much beyond, I'll sit there and order a case of books and sit on them so people can get it access, you know, have an opportunity to get it later. Oh, exactly. And because uh, as you and I both read, it's a great work. And Jim Rosen is also a nice person to talk with, you know, about uh, Hollywood. Um, you can talk to him about, um, Quincy, you know, I'm James. Um, oh God, I'm blanking on the name. Help me. Uh, he Jack, wrote books Jack, on Quincy. Jack Cole. Jack. Jack um, Klugman. 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 Thank you, because he, he has wonderful stories. But Jack Klugman, how he helped him out, you know, be, and, and with Quincy and stuff like that to get on there and to do different things, you know. So it's and also he was in the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. So it's there's a lot of little things that you could talk to Jim about. Who's and he's written lots of different books. 
you know, a lot of it on classic TV. Yeah, he went to the effort to do one on a wagon train, uh, Naked City, The Invaders, on Route 66. I actually have, he's one of the few authors, I have a few authors, but he's one of them, where a little section on the bookshelf is all his books. Because every book he's done, I've actually bought, and I put them up on the shelf. In fact, Nehemiah Persoff's book is with those. Um, and some authors, I've got a book, but not all their books. So he's got his own Jim Rosen show in my house. Oh, and, and it's, 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 it's money well spent, but for listeners wondering, you know, again, we're going to move into the movie that we're going to be talking about in just a second, but do you have anything else you want to talk about the minute late nostalgia convention? It's coming up on September 15th or the 17th. Yeah. It's a hunt Valley Marriott in Maryland, North of Baltimore. They don't have to go into Baltimore. Um, nice hotel. Actually it's in the area hunt Valley. I think a lot of the Ravens and Baltimore Orioles players live up in that area too. A nice area, and it's a good event, three days, lots of fun. I will say I recommend it if they can go there for a day, go for the drive, go meet Bob Eubanks and Melissa Gilbert and any of the celebrities that are there to answer questions, find photos. There's a lot of vendors selling a wide variety of merchandise and collectibles. The one compliment, best way I can do as an advertisement, is multiple people over the years have told me, oh, I went there last year for my first time. It was my friend Bob came with me. It was a day. And they go, moving forward, we're going to come the whole weekend. We didn't realize how much fun that was or what all was going to be there. So that's a compliment when people are coming one day, one year, and then after that they come for the whole weekend. I've been coming to the convention ever since you had the bionic reunion, and uh, I don't plan on stopping unless you know something God willing stops me from being able to come one year. So it's, 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 it's a great time. You know, you get there, it's laid back. And also, again, like I said to everybody, I'm, I'm, I know some of you are jealous. It's a, it's a short drive from my house. So I don't have to worry about paying for an expense of a hotel or whatever. I could just drive right to it. I know a lot of people that I'm friends with and, and people that I've meet that just drive up for the day, you know, they're in the area and they'll, some of them will take off the Thursday from work or take a half day of work and they'll come right over to, um, the convention for that afternoon and evening and um, to meet the different people and to, to sit in on some of the seminars. I know some that will look ahead of time at the, the seminar list and know what day they want to come and plan that day. And some people like myself, they go all three days. Yeah, and I know we are – I mean, Ron Adams' show with Monster Bash is the same way, but we're one of the few that is a bit more personable because Ron's is personable too. Because I can't say all – most conventions aren't, but most aren't. Um, easy way to describe us, I guess we're personable enough that like, as an example, last year, someone called and said, look, I'm coming from Texas. I'm flying in. I just want to meet Marley Renfro. I want to get her autograph on a few items. I'm a big fan of Psycho. I'm blown away that she's at a convention. I'm going to the expense, but I'm flying in and flying back on the same day. And I'm going to have, by the time I get to the hotel, as long as the airline is not messing up, I'm only going to be there for four hours. And I don't want to be in a line for four hours waiting for a borderline getting back to the airport. And I told him, I said, you've got my number, the same one you can text. If you have a problem, we'll get you in the front of the line real quickly. I'm sure we can explain it to people online. We'll get you in, you can meet her, and then you'll be all set. He goes, I appreciate that. And I just happened to accidentally bump into him at the convention, and he just came up to me and said, I want to thank you for what you did when you made that offer. I appreciate it. Because it turns out I've got three hours to spare, so I'm going to spend a half hour wandering the vendor room while I'm here before I go back down to the airport. But he said, God bless you did that. He said, I appreciate it. And so every time someone calls up, and you get one or two a year that they have an unusual request, we're like, well, whatever we can do to make it comfortable and easy. 
Oh, exactly. And that's the other thing is there's the vendor room where you can rent tons and tons of different collectibles from so many different um, genres of movies and TV and, and books and music. I mean, everything. And you also have radio plays, you know, which are going on, which are basically just like the old time radio, you know, where, where people can try out for and be and be participants on one of them. And you also have, I think, on the banquet, you have a professional group that does a show also. Yep. Oh, yeah. They uh, have three of them. One is a group that comes down from New York, very professional. Um, then the second day is one where people can try out the attendees so they can play for a role if they want. Um, Don is always looking for whoever can do the mannerisms and the voice is the best fit. So it doesn't matter what the role is. He does try to make sure there's a few women roles and men roles because back then there was a lot more male roles. So that way the women can get a chance to get in there and play roles on this drama. And then they draw, they do rehearsals for a couple hours and then they do it for an audience so everyone can go in there and watch it. And then on the dinner banquet, the one novelty we do, like old silent movies where lost films are lost, a lot of old radio shows are lost. So what we'll do is we'll have the cast, uh, they do reenactments of fake Gunsmoke or Dragnet. Like this year, they're doing a Dragnet. That's one where the recording does not exist in recorded form. So we're actually filling in a gap from an original script. It's not something new. It's not something that they've heard already on recording. So if someone, it, it, we're waiting for the day someone turns to me and says, you know, that was the worst amateur uh, script I've ever I've ever heard. Whoever wrote that didn't have any idea what the dragnet would be. I'd be chuckling going, it really was a dragnet script from 1951. <laughs> but so far, it's nice that we're filling in the gap. And, and that's the great thing. So, I mean, it's just a lot of things for people that are there. You can participate in a multitude of different ways. Yeah. I had you, I rolled the genre die for you. And if I remember correctly, re-rolled um, Family Friendly. Or action. I can't remember. I think it was action. And I think whatever. Well, you picked one that is family friendly and it's action. You picked 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from 1954. Yeah. It's a film I've always always enjoyed since I was a kid. Back when I think we had beta and DVD. It might have been on beta. And I probably wore the darn thing out as a kid because I loved the film. Well, you're younger than me. So when I was seeing it for the first time, it would be on the on TV, you know, the wonderful world of Disney, what they, if they were to air it again, or sometimes it would be on one of those um, Saturday or Sunday um, afternoon or evening, you know, shows like they, they maybe pay the rights to Disney to re you know, to redo it, you know, to put it out. And then eventually, yeah, I got the videotape and it was just like, Oh, this is great. Cause I mean, you're talking about for people that love movie history, what a cast, Kirk Douglas, James Mason, Peter Lorre. I mean, those three are just like, icons Paul. of movies and paul lucas yes yeah and to me that's the introduction of paul lucas i've seen him in paramount films in the 1930s and think so now i have an appreciation the connoisseur of old movies and i see paul lucas doing a bunch of those but just watching I, I always recognize him as a younger version of the professor from the Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea <laughs> so it's not even as paul lucas as a hollywood star paul lucas as a disney actor I mean, it's just one of those things. It's based off the Jules Verne classic. I mean, it follows Captain Nemo and going underneath. And I just remember not only seeing this movie, but when the first time I ever went to Disney World down in Florida, I remember they still had the Captain Nemo sub ride. And I was able to partake of that, which now is no longer, it has been around for a long time. So I was like, you know, that was something interesting. I could say I was on, and sadly none of you young people will ever know. 
<laughs> oh yeah, small little trivia. It's kind of amusing now, but in 19 July of 1955, when Disneyland opened in California, Disney did it on a shoestring. He was literally take borrowing, getting whatever investors. A lot of times in business, that is not uncommon. Even as, and his was so big venture, it was unbelievable. So they get ABC to come in and they do a 90 minute telecast, and all of a sudden, one of the technicians of the TV says, "This old." We're not covering in the future. We're not covering any features over there at the Nautilus. Apparently, the Nautilus sunk and the ride was not working. They did not want that telecast. <laughs> Some thought, oh, this is a bad omen. Apparently, they were wrong. Yeah, it wouldn't look good if it was sinking while they're filming. Yeah, that would not be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, the Nautilus is not coming up, folks. Well, we'll come back to it later. <laughs> Actually, I think the worst part of it was on opening day. They just finished paving the parking lot the night before. So the end result is a lot of car tires started sinking into the asphalt. <laughs> and they did not cover that on the broadcast. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's funny. Uh, Disney is known for animated movies and live action films. At that time, he was only known for animated movies with RKO as the distributor because uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was his first live action film. So it was his first venture into it. So he spared no expense. But it was a big moneymaker in the theater. So everyone went, okay, I guess he's also good at not just doing the uh, animation. And it was kind of a situation where I guess any skeptics said, well, he's got to stick to what he's really good at. He was really good at that, too. And, that, and that's the thing. It's it's nice when you take chances and, and, and try to go beyond. And uh, sometimes it works for you, like this one did. And sometimes it doesn't work for you. You know, it, it just depends on how well you do the project and, and how it hits the public at that particular time. Some some things will come out too soon for the public consumption, and some things will come out after that that window period for the public. And this one came yeah. out right at the moment because it, it cost like five million to make budget wise, and then it made twenty eight over twenty eight million in the box office. So it way recouped its cost. Oh yeah. And it's, it's amazing. You watch the film today, it's a technical marvel. It's actually, today they do green screen. So it's like, let's equate it to Aquaman, which is an uh, underwater movie. And it looks like a cartoon. I see this big battle. I see even the sequences where he's just hovering and his hair is waving. And I'm looking at that going, this looks like a cartoon. No offense to the people who made Aquaman. Um, the rest of it was good, but then you watch 20,000 leaps under the sea and it really does look like people are in suits underwater. And I go, no, because they, they are in suits underwater. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's the, the props and the effects that they used. I'm all, I've always, when I watch 20,000 leagues under sea, it's just drawn by the Nautilus. I mean, it's just an iconic model that they did of you, know, of the, of the ship. But then when you get to the interiors and you're seeing this, this steampunk ship that is um, sinking other warships and stuff like that and bringing them down, but you're looking at the inside part of it. It is just amazing how the I, I mean, the set design people were just on the top of their game. Oh, yeah. And I, I think he spared no expense because by then he had money coming in from so many ends. It wasn't just... Uh... You know, I mean, I know he was doing it before the getting this while he's trying to get the uh, theme park opening. And, of course, he hasn't gotten the theme park opening, and here he is spending money on a live-action movie. But I would wager it made so much money that actually helped contribute to Disneyland, the creation of the theme park. Oh, you're right. And going back to what you are saying, because so many things are done with green screen or, and CGI, it's nice when you watch a movie where they're on 
location when you're actually you can you can see the physical location because you can tell by the camera when you're looking at it, how you can see everything going into the distance. So you're like they're actually at a spot where you know the Bahamas, the Jamaicas when they're filming and they're in real caves and using real cliffs where it just it just feels more realistic. Yeah, and and I like that because I think today they don't do enough of that. I know it's usually pointed out when they're making movies with creatures like aliens or monsters, and they go, "Oh, we got to have the stop motion. We got to have this." You watch that new movie, Jurassic World, the the most recent one, and I'm watching. I'm going, "Okay, it's nice that they have stop motion creatures, but these don't look good." And I'm not saying that the computer would have looked better. Computer would look cartoonish, but this looked like it wasn't like a Rick Baker production where he would have said. No, 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 do the right lighting. Let's make this thing really look realistic like the first uh, uh, Jurassic Park movie. I'm watching Jurassic World, and these look like animatronic puppets. And I was like, this is sad. They could have done much better for the fact that they went to the real deal deliberately instead of computer for that purpose, and then they just defeated the whole point. Disney did it, and there's no special. There's even he had some special effects and trick photography, but it just comes out. They took a, a novel, which I've read, and it's very dry. It's it's typical of, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Jules Verne. Jules Verne, yeah. And I've read it. It's a bit dry and very long. And what the person who wrote the screenplay for Disney got it down perfectly. And I was like, this is a perfect way to take this lengthy 14-hour novel it would take to read and put it into two hours without really cutting out anything important and then maintaining a good, steady pace. Plus a good director at the same time, too. Oh, exactly. Because, I mean, you're talking about Richard Flesher. So it's when you're getting him, you know you're getting a really good job of, of, of movies and things like that. Because, I mean, I mean, The Vikings, Fantastic Voyage, um, Dr. Doolittle. I mean, there's the, the Tor, Tor, Tor. And one of my favorite um, 70s movies, Sewerland Green. I mean, he's he's done a lot of excellent work. Yeah, and it, it's a great movie. I mean, the actor, I've seen James Mason in tons of movies before and after, and I will have to say it probably is um, one of the best of the James Mason world, almost like he was Captain Nemo, he was not James Mason. But yet every movie I've seen since then, it's I sometimes think Captain Nemo, because I'm just so used to having grown up watching it, but you like, you know, North by Northwest, he's still good in there, but I still kind of see Captain Nemo, he just did that role perfect. And yet, you look at it, to be fair, he, he's James Mason. He, he's James Mason in everything he does. And somehow I just equate him, the actor, as the Captain Nemo. Uh, yeah, I'm the same way with you on that. Because I, when I think of James Mason, I automatically think of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And then I have to remember he was in other things, lots and lots of other things, Journey to the Center of the Earth and stuff like that. And it's just – but, yeah, this, this to me is his signature role. To me, you know, when I when I think of him as in, in great roles, it was, it was a perfect match. Captain Nemo and him, the script, everything worked. Oh yeah, and uh, even a, a joke at somebody once turned around. We were uh, watching, we're getting ready to watch a movie. This is probably like two or three years ago, and it was the uh, British musical TV production of uh, Doctor Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and it stars Kirk Douglas. And someone said, "My God, can Kirk, Kirk Douglas really sing?" And almost instinctively, I said, he sang in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And they looked at me and went, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is surprising when, you know, for people, they, they'll forget that or they don't, you know, you don't associate certain people for singing, not knowing that they might have had a theater background. And, or, and I think with Kirk Douglas, vaudeville 
was a big background for him, you know, going through all that stuff, working your way up and doing all these different things. So it's not like it was a big stretch for him to be able to do a lot of things that you would not normally associate with him. Right. Yeah. And as Peter Laurie was always good in that role too, as he's sitting there, he's, he's actually, it's funny. He's a major character in the, in the novel and they kind of toned it down a bit, but Peter Laurie really wasn't um, an instrumental character. He's more of a witness to the events, even though in the movie, whereas in the novel, it's clearly the professor and the professor, they did it by, having him taking his notes in his notebook and then, you know, dictating a such and such date today, we went underwater. It was amazing, et cetera. And as a scientist, he, as a human being, he's horrified about what Nemo is doing, but as a scientist, he actually understands and he's fascinated and somewhere progressively, he actually sides with Nemo saying it ends justifies the means. And by then it's too late. And he wonders if this is where, mankind is going to ultimately kill itself off just because it has too far difference of opinion without actually looking at the facts and the scenarios. So it's a, it's a great novel. Um, if anything, what they did at the movie is they turned around and took away most of that, uh, um, you know, like four or five pages consecutive where all it is is Nemo giving his thoughts or the professor's giving his thoughts about all the, um, you know, the flora and the fauna and the coral on the bottom of the ground on the bottom of the ocean. You're like, I don't need to be reading all of this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's perfect for a book, but when you're, when you're watching something that's in a movie, you want to have that visual experience. You don't want to be hit with a bunch of dialogue dumping, especially if it's dialogue dumping that doesn't do anything to move the plot along. Correct. And uh, in this case, it works for what they wanted to do. Um, for Disney, and I was quite pleased to see how that came out, um, the way they made the film and put it all together. So on the plus side, um, it's they've remastered it multiple times. They put it out on Blu-ray. I'm pretty certain it's on Disney Plus, so people can actually watch it now. If they haven't and they want to stream it, I recommend it. If they haven't seen it in 20, 30 years, I also recommend that. Even the squid scene. I, to this day, is still one of the most impressive scenes of having an octopus or a squid where the tentacles are going around, and it doesn't look like something that's being dragged around on cables. It's almost like they really had stick cables inside and make it realistic. Um, they put some time and effort into it, and so it, it pulls off decades later. It's still one of the best Disney movies made. Oh, and there's a reason why it won Oscars for Best Art Direction and Best Special Effects is for reasons that you and I just mentioned. It's... It holds up still today, and it's been out almost what almost seventy years ago. So we're talking about a movie that's been around for almost seventy years, and you can still watch and enjoy it. And I love Kirk Douglas's portrayal, the rogue type character. You know, where it's just you know playing Ned, um, where he's like, is is he going to be helpful? Is he not? Because it's like he's out for himself. Is he going to help the professor? Is he not going to help? The, you know, there's so many interesting things of, of complexity going on there with all the different characters. Right. And even with the actors they had, except for James Mason being James Mason and Peter Lorre being Peter Lorre, Kirk Douglas, and I wouldn't say he's Kirk Douglas because in other movies he actually can play straight, serious, tormented roles. And it's almost like whoever was directing it was really focused on I want you to play it this way and push the actors to actually be actors and characters, which is why I said that even watching uh, James Mason and other movies, I see Captain Nemo. Yeah, I watch uh, Kirk Douglas' films, and I'm thinking 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea 
it's just the way they ended up uh, putting the film together. The actors clearly play the roles as they should. Oh, I, I can see that. Now, the Kirk Douglas, the, the, I don't have that same thing like I do with James Mason where I see him in other roles and I think of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I usually think of um, Spartacus, but that's, you know, it just depends on which way you're rolling. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's, I've always said uh, there's a difference between a good actor and a great actor. A good actor, um, if they're a bad actor, let's be honest, you're going to notice a difference. You're going to know. Um, a good actor can actually do the job and it's sufficient, which in most cases is what you see. A great actor is actually playing a role and making you forget who they are, who's playing the role. Sort of like uh, Jamie Foxx playing Ray Charles or Heath Ledger as the Joker. And all of a sudden you're sitting back going, oh my goodness, and you forget who's playing them. That's when they become a great actor. I used to say uh, John Wayne was John Wayne in every movie he did. And therefore, I don't find it, uh, he's not a great actor. And then one day I see the movie The Searchers, mm -hmm. and I watch it and I realize he's not John Wayne. He's playing a role. And from that day forward, I always said he was a great actor. And in this movie, almost all the actors prove that they can be great actors, which comes out of the director, because so, some directors can really pull that out of actors. So I think Disney spared no expense and literally gave the director carte blanche to say, just make it as good as it gets, I'll back you up. And uh, film, holds, uh, film holds well. I will tell you, having read Moby Dick, I, I read the book, I got about halfway through and had to give up. He does the same. Herman Melville did the same thing that um, uh, Jules Verne did, and he'd kill off five, six, seven pages of nothing but dialogue on descriptions of nature and underwater, the water and stuff. And I always kept thinking, I don't get why they did that, other than they just wanted to provide, like, I guess when you're reading the uh, Northwood stories, the romance of the nature, Mother Nature, and the trees and the forests and the waterfalls. But in some cases, this is where. Uh, this is, oh, hold on a sec, sorry. This is where uh, you get those moments where it, it just doesn't work for 20,000 leagues under the sea because no one cares about the coral and the flowers under the water. So I've always said it, it's one of the few times the movie's better than the book, even though it's, there's nothing in the book that is not in the movie, in my opinion. Oh, I, I, I've, yeah, I agree. Because it's been, it's been a long time since I read Jules Verne. I read it back when I was in high school. And but I remember just reading it. I'm, I'm the type I like to watch a movie – before I read the book, if, there, if I know there's a, a movie based on a book, because I've always found if I read the book first, I shouldn't say always, I usually, if I read the book first and see the movie, I'm watching the movie thinking, well, why did they do it this or why did they not do it that way? When I do it the other way around, I, I look at it as a way of it, it's expanding what the world was in the movie. But you're right. Sometimes um, an author can take it to a little too far with description yeah. and pages where you're almost like, you know, I, uh, that's going a little bit too off topic. Yeah. I remember, um, Quentin Tarantino, since we referenced Quentin Tarantino earlier, um, Tarantino wrote a novel based on his recent movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And he does add like an additional scene after what we saw at the close of the movie. And the beginning is slightly different, but he adds more to each of the characters. So the book has a lot more. But then you get to movies like, say, Jurassic Park, where after one of my favorite films, and I watched the first one a zillion times, so one day I get the book, and I go, I'm going to read Michael Critchin's book, and I want to see what the book version is. And I was disappointed, except for the scene where the lawyer gets eaten on the toilet by the dinosaur in the movie, because the lawyer survives in the novel. The rest of the novel is exactly 
just like the movie. Whoever did the adaptation did not change much of anything. And I was expecting some change or difference. So sometimes it's almost like you're, we're going for the story. If we like the film version, we want to read the book. If we like the book, we want to see the film version. One's always going to be better than the other by take of what they have. Quit, you know, one has a pro and the other has a con. But in some cases, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is rare, nope, if you watch the movie, you've read, you've read the book. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a different medium, because, you know, but they told the story through the visual part, which is what you expect the movie to be able to do. Tell the story with pictures and sound and music and acting, and they did an excellent job with it. And for listeners that haven't seen the 54 version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, you have to see it. I mean, it's just, it's a great family action film. It's, it's all ages. Anybody can watch it and enjoy it. There's a lot going on, a lot of great acting going on, a lot of great special effects. Just, it's, it's just a great story. I mean, you're, you're going to be in it for the whole ride. Right. And it's amazing because I think uh, some people might have been skeptic as to even when they first saw it. Well, it might have been a one-hit wonder because they were going to put that kind of money and time into this next feature. And you think about it, literally, I think it was 10 years later or just a hair under 10 years later, uh, Mary Poppins comes out to be his crowning achievement. And I remember even somebody, they, I read somewhere, somebody went to Disney during the Oscars and while he was stealing the Oscars for Mary Poppins that year. Someone said, you'll never do one better than that. And I didn't think you could top 20,000 leagues under the sea. So, you know, it was almost like a see what he pulls off 10 years later. But of course, he passed away before them. So, and I, it's a bummer too, because if they had the 20,000, if they had the Nautilus ride at Disney World, at Disneyland or Disney World, I would have gone to go on that ride just because that would have been one of the first things I would want to hit just to see what it would be like to go under the water and see Captain Nemo. And sadly, they never ended up uh, having the ride by the time I finally got to Disney World. I went there too late. Yeah, I, I, was, I went there in 1985, if I remember right. So it was just, you know, perfect time. I was in high school and we got there and it was at um, uh, Magic Kingdom and one of the guys, the guys were like, okay, what rides are we going to go on? It was a high school trip. And I was with you know, like three other guys were walking around the park. And I said, I want to do, I want to do the Nemo ride. And we all did it. And I actually did it. Like, I think I, I think I did it three times overall. Uh, <laughs> and and it, it was just, it, it, it was not a great ride. I think for the average person, it was slow. It was, but for me being a fan of the show and the movie, I just enjoyed it. So it, for me, it worked. But I think I think the reason they replaced it because it was a slow loader and it just wasn't as as the years go by, you know, certain things get replaced out. Like I'm still surprised that they had the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse there. I'm I'm always hearing stories that they're going to alter it or take it down and switch it out. And so you just know it's eventually one of those things that all these things that happened in, way back then are going to be updated or replaced altogether as the, as you know, new generations come in. And, and again, everybody's classic and nostalgia era alters, you know, as, as the years go by. Correct. And since his movies are timeless, hence why they're classic, um, you would think that, it, you know, it just lasts a lot longer than most rides would have normally, just trying to uh, maintain that status quo of people coming in who are fans of that movie. And it's like, well, the movie was in the 50s. Why would there be a ride now? But I, I would imagine that Treehouse, and I've been there, I would imagine that's going to stay there a lot longer than they keep contemplating. I'll tell you why. As you know, some of the rides at Disney World and Disneyland, there's long lines and there's people wanting to get into them. 
And that has become, I wouldn't say much problematic, but one of the easiest solutions is to have a treehouse where little kids can roam around because it's not a 20-minute ride. So the parents can take the kids, let the kids roam around, the parents can relax. It's almost a little bit haven for the parents. But in the also sense for the theme park, it keeps the lines from being any longer at some of the other rides. So it's almost probably staying in there, not so much for the romance and love of playing in the Swiss Family Robinson treehouse and a tree jungle, but rather, I think, personally, it's the ergonomics of just maintaining that large crowd of attendees that visit that theme park. Oh, I agree. I, I, the, the thing that I've always keep hearing that they're talking about doing and I don't think they're going to now, but for a long time they were talking about updating it, making like a Tarzan treehouse, you know, uh, and, and those kind of things. Like it would still be a treehouse, but they were going to change it to where it was going to be more like the animated film and Tarzan and change it that way. But I think now that they've moved so far away from the Tarzan movie, I think that's becoming less and less of a likelihood. But you never know. Uh, well, I've noticed some of the rides they've been canceling and changing, like Twilight Zone Tower of Terror is now Guardians of the Galaxy ride or becoming that and then primarily it's because they own guardians and they don't do not have to pay royalties per se as much as they would cbs for twilight zone so i would think tarzan the edgar Wright burroughs estate would have to get a royalty and disney is trying to hey we own so many properties why are we paying royalties so i would imagine the tarzan angle is probably out just because they don't want to pay royalties the old joke why is uh, paul free's voice still in the haunted mansion and while it was, pre- it was recorded before a certain time, so technically, as long as they keep using the recording, they don't have to pay royalties. <laughs> so they're never going to update that. They want to have that old recording for that purpose. Well, I guess so. In, in some ways, it works out for us that have that nostalgic factor going into it. And um, is there anything else you wanted to mention about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Yeah. Um, I, if you're familiar with the magazine Film Facts, I'm sure some of the listeners are familiar with it. They had a two-part article, this was probably maybe 10 years ago, that's worth seeking out. Someone had did a write-up on the making of the movie, and it's been a long time since I've read that, probably like a decade. Um, worth worth checking out, and I've always said nobody really did. It's rare that somebody could do an extensive behind-the-scenes making of for a movie like that, and certainly not for a magazine. And so there's like a nice little history of that. Um I know on Disney Plus, they've got this thing called Behind the Attraction, and they've never done one for the Nautilus because it does not exist now, but they've also never done like that documentary on the making of the movie. But I believe somebody said now they're putting extras under the movies where you can go over like a DVD extra. You can now look at the making of the film shorts, the vintages, so you can see the making of the film in a sense. There's also like a visual documentary on there. And so that's something where... I know when they came out with it on DVD. Now, I don't think it was the first time. might have been the second time. It was the two-disc set. They put a, I think it was a goofy cartoon and then a 10-minute nature video or cartoon uh, film short. And it turns out they were the actual films that was attached with the movie in the theater because uh, Disney naturally didn't want people to miss the first few minutes of the film. So they put those bonus extras. So when the theater says what time the movie, people who come in five minutes late still don't miss the uh film the beginning of the film at all and they put them on the dvd so you could actually have a night in the theater as it was back in 1954 so uh, i'd like to know if those are on the disney plus i might have to check that out tomorrow just for curiosity but it'd be nice if they do because then you could actually have your own night at the at the, the theater in 54 
that is pretty cool, especially it, it depends on what your system is set up and that kind of stuff. Or um, sometimes you have those feeders that do those revivals. It'd be nice if one's doing the revival, they make sure that they put the same two shorts up in front of it. So that way you get the full experience of what it would have been like Christmas time, 1954, watching it for the first time. Right. And I remember they used to have a thing called B pictures back then, as you know, as I do. Um, they have, they would have like two films instead of one because they were a lower, they were like a different kind of package deal. And the fact that that movie came out 20,000 leagues under the sea with no double, no second movie said that that was considered an A class picture for the initial release. That's impressive for Disney. Not that his animated movies weren't a class, but normally someone said, well, we should have two movies, a double feature to make sure we get people coming in. So they did the publicity and advertising right. And I guess word of mouth back then was considerably worth it. Of course, they were in the theater differently than they are today, where they're not out three, four, five weeks later. They could be in the theater for, you know, as you know, like three, four, five months, as long as the box office receipts were still coming in. Oh, exactly. And uh, I, I, that's fascinating to find out, because I didn't know about the um, the shorts prior to the movie until you brought that up. You know, like they, they, you know, the cartoons that were going on a little bit earlier. But I mean... You know, it's it's just one of those things. If you have certain things, you get that extra knowledge, and you're just like, "Ooh, cool!" Yeah, it's it's a recommended movie. So hopefully, we keep people's interest that they saw it. They're remembering certain scenes, maybe even the song "A Whale of a Tale." Uh, "Whale of a Tale," I tell you, lad, a whale of a tale too. And I'm thinking, I even still remember the lyrics, and I have not seen that movie in 20 plus years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I think I know how I'm going to end this episode. When when um, I, I do the end thing, the last thing we're going to play is we're going to play The Whale of a Tale. We'll have we'll have Kirk and Douglas singing the song and let people hear that as the as the way to carry us out. And see if they can remember. We won't tell them. See if they remember what the name of the seal was before he actually says the seal's name. Because I remember correctly at the end of the song, the, the seal gives a seal of approval. <laughs> <laughs> That is just awesome. Uh, uh, but Martin, I want to thank you for joining in with me to talk about the upcoming Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention and um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Well, oh, you're very welcome. Glad to be on the show. If anyone wants any information about the convention, even if they hear about this uh, after the show is over and they missed it, we do it every year in September. Um, the website is www.midatlanticnostalgiaconvention.com, named after the event, midatlanticnostalgiaconvention.com. And for listeners that are driving when listening to this, um, I, I have like the notes like in the description part, and the link will be there. So you can click on the link, and it'll take you right to the website. So, you know, and I, I know sometimes when you're driving, you know, you can't, we don't want you to write it down while you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> We want you to show up at the show, not not show up at a hospital. You know, those kind of things. Drive safely, yeah. But, but thanks again. Well, pleasure to be on the show. Hopefully I'll be back on there, back on in the next year or so. Oh, we know that'll happen. <laughs> I hope everybody enjoyed our conversation about the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I'm looking forward to seeing anybody there at the convention. I'm going to be there myself, so if you see me, um, come on over, feel free to talk about movies or whatever else you want to talk about. I love having conversations, as you know, with people. As, as, as Martin and I talked about, there's a lot of people that I interviewed prior to this convention that are going to be there or be talked about. 
So if you want to get a little idea who's coming up and what they've done in the past, um, Jim Rosen, who we talked about, I interviewed in episode 75. Beverly Washburn, I interviewed in episode 77. And in episode 83, I got to interview Nehemiah Persoff, um, who's 102 years old at the time and passed away a few months after that interview. So I hope everybody takes the time to listen to those, um, especially the Nehemiah Persoff one, because you'll never be able to hear from him again. And if you come to the convention, you'll hear Jim talk about his life and times during one of the seminars. And, of course, I think you'll be able to get the book, The Many Faces of Nehemiah. Now, just because those are interviews in the past doesn't mean there's not interviews coming up in the future. And in the future, some of the people that are going to be at the convention, Jennifer Savage, Jeremy Ambler, and Laura Cayouette are going to be joining me on the podcast. So I've already interviewed them. I got them recorded. And they'll be coming out in the up, up episodes prior to the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention. So again, you can listen to them, get an idea what questions you might want to talk to them about, what questions you might want to ask them and things you might want to talk to them about. And if you can't come to the convention, at least you get a little bit of a feel what it would have been like if you would have been at the convention. And of course, don't forget if you have any feedback, please leave it to us at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Facebook page. Otherwise, we're going to exit this in episode out with A Whale of a Tale, sung by Kirk Douglas. Thanks. Got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads. A whale of a tale or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tale, and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Mermaid Minnie. Met her down in Madagascar, she would kiss me any time that I would ask her. Then one evening, her flame of love blew out. Blow me down and pick me up, she swapped me for a trout. Got a whale of a tail to tell you lads, a whale of a tail or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's so true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Typhoon Tessie. Met her on the coast of Java when we kissed. I bubbled up like molten lava. Then she gave me the scare of my young life. Blow me down and pick me up. She was the captain's wife. God, a whale of a tail to tell you both. A whale of a tail or two. By the flapping fish and the girls I've loved. On nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's all true. I swear by my tattoo. There was Harpoon Hannah, had a face that made you shudder, lips like fish hooks, and a nose just like a rudder. If I kissed her and held her tenderly, held her tenderly. there's no sea monster big enough to ever frighten me. Got a whale of a tail to tell you, lad. A whale of a tail or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail, and it's all true, I swear by my time.